Welcome to the Ghost Army Podcast, the bolt-action podcast that really digs into the historical backing for a lot of the Army's uh, themed missions and just having a good time while playing the game that we know and love, which is, of course, bolt-action. Now, if you listen to the Ghost Army Podcast episode zero, you will have heard that we have the original cast back, largely, uh, plus we have a whole new slew of personalities on the show. Now, I've had a lot of people asking, when is the first Gap episode back? Well, I guess this is it. And this is part of a new format of the Ghost Army podcast. Now, there will be some of the sort of more epic panel discussions that we've had in the past, but also as part of just wanting to take nicks, nooks and crannies of the bolt action tabletop world, so to speak, and fleshing them out a little bit, we're going to do little vignettes about particular armies or forces or conflicts in World War II, and we're going to talk about how you can bring them to life on the bolt-action tabletop. Joining me today, of course, is a man who is no stranger to bolt-action podcasts in general. He has been on, I believe, the LRDG2, possibly the LRDG1, but absolutely many episodes of Cast Ice, and is one of my regular opponents for gaming when we could do that before COVID. Of course, I'm talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Dave Monroe. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. I'm excellent, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk bolt-action. Dude, it is so good to have you on the show, and I'm loving what you're bringing to the table today because it is something that I am woefully uneducated uh, with, and uh, it is something that, as someone who's lived in Australia for 15-plus years, I should probably know more about. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, let me tell you explicitly what we're talking about today, guys. We are going to be digging into a very specific Australian force. Now, there have been many bolt action podcasts that have talked about Australians in the jungle, um, as that is, you know, one of the highlights of the Papua New Guinea book, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, Army List, which is put together um, by Mark Barber, by I believe Anthony Mason, and of course, Brian Cook from this podcast. But we're going to talk about how you can use those rules, plus some of the generic British rules to talk about Australians in a different conflict much earlier in the war. Dave, what are we going to talk about today? Because this is your baby and I am going to sell it wrong. Uh, well, I've had, a, a like many, uh, after the de- after the jungles, the, the campaigns in the desert are also uh, quite interesting and compelling mm. uh, conflict and campaign going backwards and forwards across North Africa over several years and including the, the longest siege uh, in British Army history um, uh, in Tobruk, uh, of right. which the Australian, uh, Australian, the um, I'm going to get it wrong now, but the Sixth Division made up the bulk of the. Uh, was it the ninth? One of the divisions. When I get to my notes, I'll dig it out. But they they made up the bulk of the garrison there, and so I think it'd be really interesting to have a chat around the different ways you might bring that to the table. You know, there's nice. so many different bits and pieces in that campaign. It's got that early war kind of funkiness about it with all the tanks and things that are available. That's right. And these would be the soldiers that earned the official nickname, the Desert Rats, correct? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that started as uh, a, a uh, an insult, essentially, that mm-hmm. was uh, then embraced uh, by the, the garrison themselves. Yeah, the Desert Rats. I thought just to frame this, uh, I'd start with a, a quote straight from a dude called Chester Wilmont, who was a journalist at the time and, uh, and wrote uh, a book about uh, Tribrook that he published in 1945, uh, so written during the war and published just after. This is uh, from right at the end. At the setting of the sun, we are met to honour those who the sun has set, but whose names shall live. Here beside the road that runs from Bardia to Tribrook, the smooth brown sand of the desert is broken by 800 white crosses and the mounds of 800 graves, the graves of those who have died fighting for their country at Tribrook. In the west, the sun has just set, but the sky is still streaked with light and a restless wind sweeps a dust cloud across the cemetery. From the escarpment to the south comes the occasional thunder of guns. Along the road, from time to time, trucks, armoured cars and tanks roar past on their way to the front or from the front. Half a mile away, troops are shaking out their blankets. The ordinary life of war goes on while we are gathered to do homage to those who have found peace only in death. Silhouetted against the evening sky is their memorial, a plain grey concrete obelisk bearing the inscription, this is hollowed ground, for here lie those who died for their country. Over this inscription is draped a Union Jack, and around the memorial are now gathered those who have come to honour fallen comrades. Each unit in the Chibuk Fortress has a representative here. There are officers and men of the British, Australian, Polish and Indian forces, officers and men of the Army, Navy and Air Force, for members of all three services are buried here. So I thought I thought that was interesting because um, just a reminds it frames just how broad the conflict was, uh, right. the number of different nations involved, and all all three arms of the service. Absolutely, and it, it is a um, definitely definitely gives us a moment of pause uh, before we dig into and sets the stage. Um, now, give us a little bit of a, a historical background. Why were, I mean, why were the Australians in the North African desert? What was the, the larger conflict that they were part of that theater? What was the focus? And uh, dig into Tobruk a little bit. Why is it such an, an iconic uh, um, conflict? Okay. Uh, I think the the main reason they were there, the... By then, France had surrendered, uh, mm-hmm. and so the Allies uh, were out of Western Europe, at least, and, and thrown out of there. Uh, at the start of this campaign and when uh, it was going on, there was still some potential that even uh, the UK might be invaded and the Battle mm-hmm. of Britain uh, was going on. And the Mediterranean and North Africa was important as connection back through to oil mm-hmm. uh, and, and for the British uh, back to uh, India and other parts of their, what they called their empire, but the Commonwealth uh, and the resources and whatnot that were going on there. Mm-hmm. And so defending Egypt and the Suez Canal. And the fighting went backwards and forwards a few times. Uh, all the various campaigns, there's some terrific books around on it. So the library will have them, uh, I'm sure, uh, different ones. Uh, and the... Italians invaded and the British, uh, including Australian divisions, invaded back and pushed the Italians out and then the Germans arrived uh, and so that was all the way back to Benghazi and Tripoli uh, and then the Germans arrived and pushed the Allies back again 
and their front collapsed and uh, a division, a whole bunch of people retreated into Tobruk. And so that was a real thorn in the side of Rommel and his ability to uh, invade Egypt because his supply lines were thoroughly exposed to a potential breakout from Tobruk. So he ended up uh, having to uh, use a lot of his time and effort to try and keep them in place. So that was kind of the broad framing of, of that conflict there. And the, the soldiers in Tobruk were notably famous be, and were earned the nickname the Rats of Tobruk because um, despite being shelled, they would dig new trenches every day and they sort of scurried from place to place to stay in cover. Yeah. Um, am I getting that right? Yeah, um, pretty much. The, the Tobruk itself is interesting because it was built by the Italians. Uh, I mean, it was a Libyan port. It was built by presumably Libyans, but right. the Italians were the ones who fortified it. Uh, and uh, the Ninth Division were the ones that ended up in there. And yes, they 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 were very active in uh, restoring and extending the the defences, the trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, more than trenches, well, there was uh, they were more a series of. Um, supporting strong points and little uh, um, uh, little individual um, defense points that mm-hmm. that looked at, that could support each other across in, in a couple of lines because the ground itself was actually terribly hard and rocky and so digging in was often difficult. A number of these points were um, what they called their sangers, so they were built up uh, dugouts out of rocks and things. Um, but nonetheless, they actively worked to extend and improve those defences. And that included um, the uh, at night going out into no man's land and, and, and active patrolling out there to make it difficult for the enemy to approach the, the, the border uh, and different things. And there's part of the theory is that a number of the officers that were there were actually uh, younger officers in the First World War, and so they were bringing their experience of trench warfare to this siege situation oh. that they were facing. That's fascinating. I didn't know that, but that makes perfect sense uh, given just how much they were, uh, you know, using siege technology uh, in World War Two, even. Yeah. And I think um, the other thing I wanted to just touch on today, Trebook is certainly one big part of it, but the uh, there's... Earlier, the 6th Division uh, had arrived and, and that initial advance that liberated Tribook in the first place uh, included uh, the very first combat that the Australians were responsible for in the Second World War uh, that was uh, an assault on a town called Bardia, which is between Tribook and the Egyptian border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the 6th Division. And they they were the ones that were responsible uh, for the, the advance out of Egypt and across Libya in the first place. Uh, and then they were relieved by the 9th Division. The 6th Division went off to uh, Greece and then departed from there back to, to um, the Pacific Australia. Um, and the 9th Division were a, quite a new unit and they ended up, their first taste of combat was actually um, an enormous retreat from Benghazi, what was called the um, the Triple Car Handicap. <laughs> Uh, and, and so they, their first taste was basically this um, uh, difficult retreat across the desert into Tobruk. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so they're, they're kind of uh, different things. And, and, the, and the third one on flag is, is a really interesting little uh, uh, conflict um, that actually uh, was really brutal too, and that's um, uh, Australia actually fought a war with France at that time 
where the seventh division invaded Syria, uh, which was def- um, uh, occupied by uh, Vichy French mm-hmm. troops at that time. And so they're, they're kind of the three lists I wanted to highlight today. It's quite distinct. All Australians, all in the Western Desert, um, but three quite different forces. Nice. Now, if we're talking how to create Australian forces in any conflict, um, there are a number of places to get rules. Um, Of course, you can use the basic British book. And I think a lot of what you are using to create your list is using the armies of Great Britain and the Commonwealth forces. Um, However, if you go to the uh, Papua New Guinea book, there is an Australian selector and a set of Australian rules and units in there that you can use to create an Australian army, and we'll be discussing those as well. Plus, um, those national rules, quote-unquote, are republished in the Western Desert book, but in a slightly different way, Um, but they're not actually linked to the selector that you do get in the New Guinea book. I think Mark Barber's done a great job with that particular selector and those rules um, and really narrowing down sort of the broader scope of what is largely considered to be sort of a Pacific jungle fighting list. And, uh, but it is often overlooked that there are, there's a desert list set of rules in that book as well. Uh, Much like there are some really interesting uh, listing and uh, theater selector opportunities in the new D-Day book that's about to drop uh, in the Canadian sector book, because there are commando lists in there and several other lists in in there that have nothing to do with the, or sorry, with uh, Europe, which is fascinating. And I'm glad that they're sneaking those in, right? Yeah, look, it's really nice to have those choices because I think that um, if that list that's in the Pacific book is is terrific if you um, if you wanted to bring a list with the Western flavour to the table and the national rules they've got there are actually two good ones I think uh, so I think they're they're nice. I'd chosen not to use them uh, partially because I don't own them. New Guinea book, cough, cough. Um, <laughs> uh, but also I just wanted to highlight that I, I kind of feel that the, the British book and the way you get to choose those national rules uh, is incredibly flexible. You know, it it's is. a real Ikea uh, of a is. book, isn't it? It is, like more so than any of the other armies of books. You really do get the opportunity to flavor a list to a particular style, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah, do we, I'd just like to um, hold off talking about the national rules uh, until we've spoken about some of the toys that we might bring because mm-hmm. I think the national rule brings a nice kind of flavour to the end and and I, and I really, I don't feel there's a really right way. There's no single right choice here. Right. Uh, there's a little bit about how do you like to play or, or a little bit about where your emphasis is. Um, I, I guess one one thing about that uh, list that's in the New Guinea book is you get to have two special rules in addition to your arty, mm-hmm. um, which is nice. Whereas if you just go with the um, uh, fly, uh, trying to build theme from the core armies of book, uh, you just get to choose one, uh, which is a bit a bit tougher, I guess. It is, but yeah. you with the one you get to choose. Whereas with the Australian <laughs> list, you are forced to take 
two in yeah that's right so that flexibility and and i guess that's one less thing you need to worry about on Mm -hmm. the day at the table and that's no bad thing (laughs) exactly right uh less thinking is often a good thing when you're trying to remember 15 things on the table um and you know it's something that non-british players often take for granted because you have a set national rule and that's it um, but yeah, let's, let's dig in a little, Dave. So, um, let's talk us about what's your first sort of ballpark list. I think, how about if we did it in time order, the Mm -hmm. sixth division assault on Bardia. So the the Australian doctrine, as I understand it at the time was really very, very similar to the broader British army. So the, the British list is solid. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're highly trained troops. They were trained even though they hadn't been in combat yet. And they, they'd trained for a long time and they were highly motivated even though they weren't experienced. So regular uh, and the force being all regular uh, makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in every case, um, in, in these three lists I want to talk about, the, the artillery doctrine makes sense. Sometimes the free arty observer doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But for all of this, it does with the Australians. Um, often they were um, British regiments that were attached, but there was also Australian artillery there, and they were capable and they were armed with those 25 pounders and and, uh, and, and similar mix. And well, again, some were mobile, some weren't. You know, they uh, they were um, supplied uh, pretty much through the same logistics. I, I'm glad uh, you said that because sometimes that particular rule can feel a little awkward um, yeah. in, in trying to represent some British, uh, you know, maybe for some of the more small elite uh, infiltrating forces to have this, yeah. this artillery rule. But for this, all three lists, I mean, that, that, that free observer or at least the bombardment rule definitely matches. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, and so the assault on, on Barty, you've got the regular troops. Um, I, I think, what I raise here is that there's some really iconic photos that happened quite early in the morning and the assault was in uh, December, so uh, desert, um, but still winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were wearing greatcoats. So tin, not slouch hats, but they were wearing greatcoats and, and their tin hats as they went in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here's this opportunity for, for what is in some ways quite a unique uh, modelling opportunity to bring to the table here, different being able to mix things up a little bit. So that that's that's something that really attracts me with this army. I haven't mm-hmm. done that. It's one of those ideas you've got I've got floating around as we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say weapons carriers, weapon carriers. So get to universal carry or bring carriers. The, the Australians didn't have a lot of tanks uh, embedded. The divisional cavalry that were there at that time basically had Bren carriers. So one of those with an MMG would be nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those supporting slots, uh, I've put in the light meters. Hearing uh, uh, was, wasn't the most recent ghost army, one before, I don't know, but you're talking about light mortars uh, nice. and, and their effectiveness. And actually it fits the feel of the assault on Bardia because these guys are on the move, you know, they're going in. So, so um, adding light mortars rather than medium uh, to me brings that mobility out a little bit more. Nice. Uh, and the anti-tanker boys... AT because you've got the early war, so whether they're ace or not, I don't know. But so the anti-tank rifle, yeah, yeah, um, and a Vickers MMG, just iconic. And for your tank, um, you could have a cruiser or a Matilda. Yeah. Now they wouldn't be crewed by Australians, but not that they'd get 
British rules or anything out of the back of it, but just as a modelling thing, um, the but either of those tanks in BA terms is fine, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these earlier war tanks um, are often cheaper <laughs> and really points efficient because they yeah. are, um, you know, they have thinner armour, they have lighter weapons, and it, yeah. There's a whole... There's a whole um, discussion around that, isn't there? Around that that cruel um, oddity of bolt action that the yeah. shitty war tanks are actually better on the table. But um, anyway, that, that's them. And for for the national rule there, if you didn't want to take those Australian rules, um, I actually think um, you could uh, use up and atom mm-hmm. uh, that extra um, uh, dice in assault. Or if you were theming it and you knew that the um, your opposition had Italians, I'd suggest blood-curdling charge because that would capture really nicely just the added impetus and motivation that the Australians had against some of the Italian, uh, relative to some of the Italians that they were attacking on that particular day. Yeah. And yeah. and just for basic troopers, you were thinking just your base rifle squad. Um, now, if you're That's using right. the Australian rules, that would be the AIF squad. If you were yep. taking just the generic British list, that would just be a generic rifle squad where you – because right. the squads were built around Bren guns, right? Yeah, that's right. The, um, the, the Lee Enfield rifles and the, and the, and, and a Bren gun uh, was that squad support weapon. Uh, that's really pretty much what they did. In, in fact, the 6th Division were probably a bit light on uh, uh, their Bren guns, their LMGs, at that point in time. Uh, the, the British Army was pretty thin on a lot of stuff and the, the Australians seemed to have a little bit less again. Uh, yeah. But... Yeah, that's not here, not there, uh, really, in game terms. Well, sorry, let's, and, and I think. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was saying, I think I mentioned earlier, I thought regular for that whole squad to exactly. reflect that they're, they're trained, but not yet really um, veteran. Now, and of course, you know, people would make the argument, well, there are trained squads that have been given veteran in the game, like paratroopers and whatnot, but these aren't paratroopers. They are well trained, um, but they are more regular soldiers so we will consider them regular as opposed to yeah. inexperienced right yeah yeah i think so or look i i could see that argument and if you wanted to pay the premium and, and put your veterans down to really represent the um additional motivation that these troops had mm-hmm. but the, the reality is is that the it was a little bit of a mixed bag going into Bardia. some of the battalions uh were bogged down on the day uh and some weren't and mm-hmm. and that wasn't their necessarily their individual fault either because um the terrain played against them there was one divi- uh, one battalion got stuck on quite a deep uh, ravine uh and their assault really bogged down and they were stuck and then uh there was a second assault went in through a different direction that ended up breaking into the uh into Bardia. um so i i think regular feels right to me yeah i, I think yeah. going off of your descriptions and what we've been talking about i think that would match perfectly mm-hmm. um well let me bring up the australian rules from the png book because um, you could use, as you said, the rules that you mentioned, but you could also use these alternate um, rules because they are 
for that time period. Um, and this would be, of course, you would have the you wouldn't have the bombardment rule, but you would have the free arty observer. But then you'd have two national rules. You'd have aggressive patrolling and you have never give up. Now, aggressive patrolling means that the Australian player automatically wins the first roll off for who places first when forward deploying, i.e. snipers, observers, uh, spotters, etc. In addition, no enemy that uh, forward deploys may set up within 18 inches of an Australian unit already placed. Also, Australian infantry spot hidden enemies at the range of 18 rather than 12. Look, that's not a game-breaking rule, but it sure is handy having um, had people deploy in your face. Yeah, and I I think if you were attracted to those rules or if you were motivated for uh, the defense of Tobruk rather than the assault of Bardia, they capture really well because I was thinking never give up was was quite appropriate for that defensive Trubrook list. That's uh, which right. Is ninth division some months later. Well, we're yeah. about to get to that, but let's let's get to what Never Give Up is, which is that it gives RT and infantry squads the fanatic rule. So yeah. um, again, very if you're defending in a, in assault. Yeah. And, and and in that case, the way you're saying that, I think you're right. I think you'd probably want to use the 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 plain Jane British rules for the the assault on Bardia. But if yep. you're moving on to later on, those those national rules, because you get fanatic and the yep. aggressive patrolling, um, it, I think that really does represent that defending. Um, yeah. And and the Trabuk list is is I think it's interesting in a different way because it, it's. Um, it's iconic, you know, just that that story that we were speaking about at, at the start. Mm. Um, as a modelling opportunity, you could be quite focused and make it a, a straight Australian force, but using those Australian rules, you could choose to still model things more broadly because within the uh, Triple Garrison, while there were embedded... Um, artillery assets and and machine gun support squad and stuff there there were also regiments from other parts of the british army um and so the uh there was a machine gun regiment from britain who were they you'd think i've done the homework i think i'd remember but they <laughs> but they were they were english anyway so if you're yeah. really into getting um not that my painting skills are there, but if you're really into getting those force markings and stuff right, right. yeah, you could potentially uh, get right down to it and do changes there. Uh, now, where do we start with the Trabrook? Um, yeah, I, I think the other thing about the Trabrook is this is your opportunity um, if you want, if you're thinking a little bit later in the siege, so everything's just a bit more worn down and rugged, again, those really lovely modelling opportunities, mm-hmm. you could actually start including more of your veterans in there because the frontline troops in the defence of Trubrook, they were hard as nails, obviously. They, mm-hmm. they were practised and in the most brutal way into their trade. Uh, and so you could get um, at least one squad of veterans in there, I think. Um, and... Still with your weapon carriers, um, with uh, in the armoured car role uh, with the MMGs, the universal carriers, uh, rather than a boy's AT, um, get a two pounder in there. Mm-hmm. Again, they're not great on the table, but that is exactly what they had in the defence, uh, mm-hmm. and they actually did really sterling work, uh, even against some of the Panzer threes uh, uh, the, um, when when the, those fights happened. So, so um, I think that would be entirely appropriate. Uh, and then most fun of all, 
those captured Italian tanks. I was about to bring it up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So what, what were they? CV-11s? Were they CV... M- M11s. So they M11s. had the, you can, according to the Australian list, you're able to take either an R35 from the armies of the France, of France, or you can take the M11 from the armies of Italy. Um, now, Warlord yep. uh, Tobu of the old LRDG fame, of course, had a uh, Australian desert force that he painted up using the beautiful Perry models, which were fantastic. But um, he, his tanks in that force were M11s. Um, and he ran them as something else, but visually he used those yeah. models. Um, Look, now I'm... on the tabletop, those you have to take either if you take either one of them because they are quote unquote looted, you would need to um, you must take them as inexperienced using that selector. But mm. that is, I mean, that makes sense. But it would give you an opportunity for some tanks that you wouldn't normally get in a British list, right? Yeah, absolutely, and they're fun on the table, and uh, also. The markings on them were quite fun because you see yeah. the photos and the, um, they actually had kangaroos painted mm-hmm. on the side that, um, uh, on the turrets. So that that's a nice little distinction there. And I think um, playing them as looted uh, would be totally on theme. But I'd be comfortable with an opponent who just proxied it and paid the appropriate points, of course, and said, uh, this, this is... Um, uh, a comparable early war tank, so um, you know, as a cruiser tank, perhaps, um, or or a Vickers, uh, mm-hmm. and just to pay for that. Not your upgunned honey tank, thank you. But um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but 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 if you chose a Vickers or, or or even a cruiser and paid the points, so I'd be happy with that uh, there. But the looted vehicles kind of fun too, I think, with that mix. So yeah. then you've got your hard as nails vets, and you've got some rubbish tanks. It'd be a fun sort of mix. Yeah, the other thing that I think would be a fun opportunity would be um, take take artillery, but model it with the Bush artillery, uh, yeah. which were captured Italian uh, guns that were uh, pressed into service. Uh, and these weren't actually operated by artillery, uh, although I believe some of the officers were, but the the by and large the crews were not trained gunners. They were... Uh, truck drivers and 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 uh, supply corps people oh, who volunteered to be into this role and so um i'm not sure how effective they were but golly gosh they're i um you know they are such legends mm-hmm. uh, and you could reflect that by uh buying them as inexperienced exactly. uh, so they so it's just a little bit rubbish um and, and that would reflect that quite well now, were the uh, uniforms similar? Would that give you an opportunity to do something visually, um, or am uh, I thinking look, too I, far I think, out of the box? Um, look, I think artillery is hard yakka, so I think they'd just be dudes in shorts. Right. <laughs> you know, the, um, uh, the, there's not you know your officer wore a shirt, and everyone else was stripped down because they were working hard. And I suspect that's really what was going on there. They're they're um, uniform was not materially different thing about the the western desert folk particularly the veterans uh everything everything is just scoured by sand uh Mm. and then they're down on the coast so you kind of have these extremes so they rusted quickly as well because you've got the salt air coming in as well Mm -hmm. and so their uniforms are really faded um, supply lines were always thin. These poor bastards lost so much weight yeah. um, while they were uh, there in this garrison. And, and the, in fact, the besieging army against them as well, the Germans and the Italians both, in some ways had it more miserable 
than than the um, uh, than than the defenders, but. Just as a matter of principle, I have very little sympathy for Nazis. Um, yes, it's um, yeah. So I, so I think that it's uh, you could have really lots of weathering and 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 a much more pale uniform, uh, uniform color. And so if you're modelling some of those things, you could have your troopers kind of being a little bit more ragtag because maybe the, the 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 officer has a butler or something uh, mm-hmm. uh, who, who could look after the uniform a little bit better, um, which is not to say they were bastards. Maybe they were. I don't know. Some <laughs> would have been. Some weren't. Yeah. But anyway, that, that's what I thought's interesting there is that these two slightly different lists because now we can bring in the arty. You've got the Italian mm-hmm. tack on the table, maybe the veteran, yeah. and your national rule is different. So these are right. both Australians both in the desert, but two quite different lists. If, if I may, Dave, because this is also a more defensive force, not only do those rules from uh, the New Guinea book slash the Western Desert book sort of represent that better, um, yeah. we did talk about the Italian bush artillery, as you mentioned, um, and the, and the two pounder, but another option that would be available that was also in that conflict was the 40 millimeter Bofors. If you wanted to do something wild with an anti-aircraft gun, um, that could be cool oh, as well. And, and look, the, the aircraft guns were absolutely there in, in Trebrook. Mm-hmm. I held off including them because, um, the air battle over Trebrook was actually quite fierce. So including one would be, uh, a nice homage mm-hmm. and they're great on the table. The auto guns. Awesome. Right. I, I love my whirlwind with my mm-hmm. Germans. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think you could include one totally, and um, they, they were there. And it, it, I should mention also that unlike um, one of the earlier uh, lists that we were talking about, I think this is absolutely – uh, a moment where you could use an air observer um, because they they were, as you said, the, the air conflict was so intense that um, you could call in air support would, as well. Would you would you would you pay for an air support if you had your free artillery observer as well? Personally, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah. um, that is an option if if someone happened to ha- happen to have that be in their bonnet. Um, but yeah, again, um, but yeah, really I, quick, I do know that oftentimes people like to take, you know, a lot of regular rifle squads or some regular rifle squads and then some, uh, you know, upgunned commando, Gurkha, whatever squads. But I would like to point out though, that, um, looking at this, it really is sort of the, we're talking about generic infantry. So your squads um, if you look at the selector, it is just AIF sections, and that is those rifle squads we were talking about before. So I think, as Dave was saying, you could run your regulars. You could probably even run them as, as veterans at this point. Um, I agree. But, yeah, but you're not going to be supplementing it with, you know, your— Do, do British veterans let you take extra SMGs? They do. Uh, you can take up to three, I believe. So, so you're not getting Gurkhas, but though a veteran squad tooled up that way would nicely reflect that yeah. no man's land dominance, um, absolutely uh, philosophy that, that that existed. Now, um, actually, I'm thinking the late war squad. Um, this is technically still early mid war. No, you can only well, have right. one sub- submachine gun. Right. Well, look, would it be stretching friendships? to buy that Gurkha squad 
Uh, <laughs> could be. <laughs> Depends on who your friend is. Proxy it. Yeah, I no. feel like it is. I, I think he could live without it, and I think yeah. you could you could win without it as well. Exactly. I think just a vet vets armed with rifles can be a bit a, a bit brutal anyway. Absolutely. And, and, and I and I think what I'm talking here is these aren't necessarily balanced lists that I'm looking towards. Although yes, balanced. These but, sound very balanced, um, Dave. <laughs> yeah. But but balanced with particular scenarios in mind. Right. So the defense of, of Chibrook, there, there was local attacks. Mm -hmm. um, and so you might be the attacker in a scenario, but on the whole, I'd be expecting that you're the one who's defending some objectives and things. So I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you don't have a truck full of veterans. And you'll notice that that, that list, I'm not really talking about having uh, lots of transport either. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I think that... Um, in game terms, is a bit nobbling, but um, beyond what you need for your guns, uh, it also reflects the nature of the, the garrison at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, you can take up to six infantry squads if you're running that reinforced platoon, and just having um, you know a nice, solid defensive base with six infantry squads is nothing to sneeze at, especially if you're sprinkling That's veterans a lot of bodies, in there. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely do some work with that, and I have in the past. And people often sort of look down their nose at it because it, it doesn't have the obvious, you know, treasure units that people in a twelve hundred point list. Mm -hmm. You've got your inexperienced tank because it's looted. Mm -hmm. Uh, your arty is free, mm -hmm. six units, uh, maybe two of them vet. Um, mm -hmm. What's that? That's, say, uh, 600, probably not much more than 650, maybe 700 points. So mm -hmm. a little bit over half is bodies. Um, yeah, that's pretty solid. Yeah, then you have room for, I mean, you have your medium machine gun team. You have yep. your, in this case, I'd probably run a medium mortar. You have your sharpshooter slash, slash sniper team. Yep. Um, you yep, have yep. your ATR. You have, basically, yep. you can take all the toys. And then you throw yep. in artillery. You throw in your recce carrier, um, possibly two if you're running two platoons. Um, yep. And then, you yep. know, you have your tank. And boom, Bob's yep. your uncle. And Yep, and lots of modeling opportunities. So I think Hell that yeah. one's really nice. That, that that that's kind of your classic Aussie desert list in some ways. And um, with all those riflemen, fanatic, just yeah. pointing that out. I mean, that is you're you're definitely, and no one's going to be um, deploying in your face. So you have the ability to set up in a way to keep people at arm's length slash to deploy in a way that will keep people off objectives in a way that perhaps you can get to them if you're used to playing people who like to forward deploy a lot of units. That isn't so common in second edition, but it still does exist. Yep, yep. So they, that's, um, yeah, that's good. And so I think, absolutely. And for something that was a bit different, again, you mentioned the R35 tank. Mm -hmm. And... Where where I would choose to use that one is actually in the Syria campaign. Bring it on. Because uh, um, that, that sounds that's, like a segue. Yeah, because uh, they were um, the Vichy French um, had those, so these mm -hmm. were liberated from them and pressed into service uh, by the Seventh Division, uh, who invaded Syria in the Damascus campaign. Um, and there's a terrific book. Um, for Australians, you see it floating around in the book grocer for about 10 bucks, mm -hmm. and, and it's absolutely worth picking up called Australia's War with France. And uh, it's a, a terrific little read, and I think it's pretty well researched. It lines up with other reading I've done on, on this campaign. 
Um, and, and so for that one, I I reckon you could pretty much use that Bardia list that we discussed earlier, mm. almost identical, but I'd include the R35 tank instead of the Cruiser or Matilda. And the other thing that I'd do that's a little bit different that brings out a completely different feel to this force would be in, to include Vengeance. Ah, of course. Well, let's talk about what Vengeance does. Um, if an army has this special rule, then every regular and veteran unit that has one or more pin markers can make a test to lose one pin marker if there's an enemy unit within 12 inches immediately before an order is given. For example, in uh, an inf a unit of infantry that has two pin markers and there's a German tank within 12, when the infantry are allocated in order, they can test to lose a pin marker immediately before that is taken, roll a dice on a four, five, six, it's passed and they lose a pin marker on a one, two, three, it has failed and they retain the pin marker it has. Yeah, and the idea of including that is that it, um, we've got this division who's invading the other force, so their their intent is to close with the enemy. So mm -hmm. this is a national rule that only works when you are actually near the enemy. Mm -hmm. But the other one, um, the 7th Division, this invasion of Syria, was one of its hallmarks was that the command was actually fairly chaotic. Um, the the Some senior officers weren't even in the country were trying to control and coordinate the battalion advances. And so it was just a, a near failure of command and control uh, at that time. Um, and so I thought something that just reflected that a little bit might, might be fun. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I mentioned. And, and so, again, there's that modelling opportunity for the R35. And then as a theme thing, um, just having, if you wanted to do two forces, the, the Vichy France, Vichy French yeah. uh, would be fun as well, yeah. uh, I think, as a modeling opportunity, although off topic from tonight. But if you look at, uh, and there are some great Vichy French armies out there, if you go to yeah. the Bolt Action Alliance uh, Facebook page and search up and look through some of the photo galleries, Brian Cook has a beautiful Vichy French force um, that is absolutely worth looking at, and he's got all sorts I of wild and wacky stuff. Yeah, cracking stuff because um, Foreign Legion, Senegalese um, and the officers and all their fancy stuff. So That's I think, right. um, it, again, it's a really nice early war type uh, force to put together. And it was a really brutal campaign. I mean, basically as many people, many Australians died in the Damascus campaign as in Gallipoli. Uh, it, it's, um, it's amazing it's not more, more well known. Exactly. It, it is not one of those. I did not know that. And uh, I, I would like to think I know a fair bit about Australia and uh, more to the point, World War II. And of course, these are just three ideas that I had to spend a little bit of time on. There's so many other ways you could have done that. Uh, the 6th Division, instead of invading Bardia, you could do the advance on Benghazi. Mm -hmm. And here they were, they were they had more trucks, they were more mobile, they didn't have their greatcoats, blah, blah, blah. Um, the 9th Division that we've got uh, as a mix of regular and veteran in Trebrook, we could do the Benghazi handicap, which was their retreat from Benghazi. And, and so now we've got inexperienced and regular troops uh, again in trucks. Um, they probably shouldn't have tanks, just weapon carriers, because mm -hmm. the, the tanks are elsewhere. So there's another way of doing it. That's cool. Um, Al um, there are Australian units there. And so I'm not sure, but I, I imagine the toys were beginning to change. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Shermans were deployed for the first time, for example, not with Australia, but there. Um, uh, Greece, Crete, 
um, the 18th Brigade uh, were in England for a little while. So there's an early war Australian force that you could actually just have um, uh, in Operation Sea Lion if you wanted as a big what if. Nice. So many different things that you could do that aren't in the desert. Yeah, and and again, oh, sorry, not aren't in the jungle. Yeah, I was gonna say, and not in the jungle. Uh, so absolutely fantastic, Dave. This is exactly the kind of uh, material that we were hoping to bring to folks who are listening to the Ghost Army, because back in the day, the Ghost Army, you know, put out three plus hour megalith episodes that were made up of you know three to four sections that were just like what we did now about 45 minutes to an hour discussions on particular topics particular armies um, from a variety of guests and um, the the ghost army crew itself and we rather than compiling them all and making you guys wait we are going to start slipping these into the stream as we go and we're still going to do some of the bigger uh, round table discussions. We're still going to get into those those big conflicts that people uh, are really looking at. We have quite a few on the list behind closed doors, but we do have some very specific uh, sort of mini-sodes like this one where we're going to dig in and really look at some different conflicts for you Bolt Action listeners out there. Dave, thank you so much. I mean, clearly you have done a ton of research on this subject. And just to hear all of your thoughts and ideas have given me a bunch of ideas that I can bring to the tabletop. And I got to say, prior to today, it wasn't something that was putting a glint in my eye. But now, you bad man, you have me thinking about different companies that make Australians. Reading's a terrible thing, isn't it? You it know, is. so you, you pick up these books and come away. I always come away with with four new ideas. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nice. Well, Dave, uh, I I know that I we we haven't talked hobby in a while, but I did want to bring up um, now that we have sort of finished talking about Australians for this particular episode. I did want to kind of ask, because you have been busy, um, what have you been painting, my man? Because you have been painting up a storm. Yeah, I've been really enjoying my painting these last few weeks. I've been painting uh, uh, Budapest pocket defender mm -hmm. list mix of hungarians and and germans um a few black trade designs some artisans a warlord mm -hmm. um yeah real, real mix of stuff and then, again it's a fun little list because it's just eclectic um you know a little bit of camo the different uniforms uh some snow gear um yeah it's a little mishmash of stuff well, let's dig in a little bit there because um, that list, of course, was in the uh, the Budapest book, and it allows you to take both Hungarian forces with German forces together. It's almost like that idea that if you have a Hungarian army or you have a German army, you can then paint a couple of units of another army and then get to add them, and in the process, you can end up painting enough that eventually you'll have the army of the other type, right? Um, but you are yeah. kind of going at this differently because you're actually painting the whole damn thing. Yeah, I, I, um, I, was, I was feeling slightly smug because I, I hadn't bought any models. These were just uh, in the cupboard. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I think I originally bought the Hungarians to do exactly what you described to add to my existing German list. Mm -hmm. uh, but just, you know, covered, not going out very much. I just went through the cupboard and thought, oh, I've got enough to do this. Exactly. <laughs> so I so I started uh, down down the path and, and assembled a, a wee lit. I say wee. I think it is about twelve hundred points. <laughs> yeah, uh, not small. <laughs> but uh, 
yeah, but there's a real mix because there's the there's a squad of Hungarians, um, there's straight German grenadiers, um, there's a squad of SS, uh, uh, which I was a little bit frustrated over because the models I have uh, match the German SS list that's in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Maria, or whatever, I can't think of their name. Put me on the spot, but um, but I wanted to use the the SS list that was actually the Hungarians in the German army. Wow. Uh, I wanted to use I wanted to use the Eighth SS because I thought that would be a really fun addition to the list because mm-hmm. I've got that special rule. Um, no, not the Eighth SS, the home ground. So it's the Twenty Second yes. SS Cavalry Division Squad. And I just thought that home ground rule was a nice solid rule to to add to to the defend pocket defender list, but in fact, uh, what I've got just the way they're armed <laughs> is they look much closer to the the Eighth SS or even the late war replacement squad, just the way they're. But anyway, that that's neither here nor there. So this is an SS list, uh, and um, I've painted up a Hanamag, which I don't think you've mm-hmm. seen yet. No, I don't think I have. Yeah, and so. Um, I was gnashing my teeth over that because it's that um, that three color one with the dots all over it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's come up well, but it is the only vehicle I'm ever going to paint that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to have those those centerpiece models slash um, you know out there schemes that you do yeah, one yeah. of and say, "I did it. Look at me." Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's fun yeah. to to stretch yourself a little sometimes, right? Yeah. He says yeah. gnashing his teeth, doing some of that in a different. <laughs> Army project, yes. Yeah, no, it's good fun to, to experiment and push. And, yeah, and I think I feel I'm a better painter at the end of this project than I was at the start. I've taken taken on board yeah. some of the, the comments and things that have been floating around the various form, forums. Yeah, man, they do look great. And you've been posting Thank them you. around the shop. So cool. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting a game against those soon. Um, I uh, I don't think I mentioned in the last cast that I've been working on a Trenchworks T28 for my fins. Uh, I want to bring fins back and make them sexy. So I have all those. Um, Late war, snowsuit. early war. The early war with a T28. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's a early continuation war. And I spoke about it fairly at length, I think, in the last episode. So I'm not going to dig into the particular conflict. But there was a conflict where their uh, fins brought uh, two uh, T28s in an assault. And it's just basic riflemen, two twenty-eight T28 tanks. Um, with no AA gun on top. Um, they just right. they just didn't use the fins didn't use them, um, and so it's I'm think I'm calling it the Twin Towers list, and it is <laughs> uh, yeah it is just two T28s with a bunch of riflemen, uh, some veterans, some not, but just base riflemen, uh, and yeah, Jakari squads is it was a Jakari unit um, with some basic army guys that went forward with these tanks. Uh, and it was like negative 35 degrees. And so everyone's going to be wearing their cold weather gear uh, and their snowsuits I, and skis. And um, I, I can't yeah. imagine something that cold. Right? I, I, I worked in a factory once that had a freezer warehouse and that was minus 16. That's the coldest environment I've ever entered. 
and that was quite cold enough, thank you. Uh, I grew up in Boston, so I, I have been in some cold situations, but mount, mountain climbing in Japan as a teenager, that was, I think, the cake. For me, that was as cold as it got. That wind chill on top, ooh. But uh, it, it gives, I mean, just getting from point A to point B can be a, a struggle on foot yeah. uh, at that point. Imagine being out in the bush with it, that and right. people shooting at you right. and yeah. But a hold of so yeah, it's insane. It's why the Finns are amazing and my heroes. <laughs> uh, not to mention putting on uh, you're taking on the entire Soviet army. But so that's where I'm at. But I'm still uh, I I've, I it took me forever to panel that giant tank white. Um, because <laughs> you know how I do a million a, a million yep. shades of or a million coats of thinned out white. But I did yep. cheat this time, and I've had many people shame me, and I will publicly say my shame. I. Um, because this is my second Trenchworks T-28, and I have painted many Trenchwork uh, early war tanks for my Japanese, I know just how many um, expletive-deleted rivets are on that tank. And so for this T-28, I actually shaved most of them off. Um, <laughs> and I, it made paneling, while with that many panels, you know, a lot easier. It was still not easy, but um, I figured once I uh, sponge in the chipping, you won't tell. At least you, I, I left you, them in the right places. Let's just put it that you, way. You, you've um, you've served your apprenticeship. You have nothing to prove. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've done this. I've done this. I, the other one has all the the GD rivets already painted. So thank you. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but Dave, uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Um, any final words um, before we roll out on Australia? But I, I think you've done a masterclass in uh, helping yeah. us to understand three different types of lists. Again, sometimes for these lists, we won't necessarily be going in point value by point value. These are the broad strokes. This is the narrative that you can use to set up your own listing, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, and I guess on Facebook or wherever, it would be fun to, to hear what other people's thoughts are around what other right. ideas there are for the Western Desert. It's such a, a diverse theatre. Um, there's so many different little rabbit holes to go down. That's right. Now, guys, we have gotten an inundation of uh, positive comments now that the Ghost Army is back. So many people have written in saying, you know, how excited they are for the old show. Um, while this show may not be, this episode may not be the show that you are looking for is the first Ghost Army back. This is part of the new format. We will have some of the old format. And for those of you nostalgic for the original cast and the original episodes, if you've noticed on the Cast Ice Podcast Network, we are going to be putting out uh, every other week, we're putting out a classic episode. Uh, and it's the original episodes from five years ago. Um, and given how close Bolt Action Version 1 and Bolt Action Version 2 are, uh, it's amazing how relevant that material still is. Um, it's not, you know, the cutting edge, but uh, there's a lot of really great material in there. I've been really enjoying going back. So between this show, uh, between the, the more regular Gap episodes that we are going to be doing, and between the classic ones, we hope that you get all of the Ghost Army podcasts that you are looking for. If there's a particular conflict, unit, 
anything that you would like to hear, um, as always, you can contact me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, at the Cast Dice Podcast Network Facebook page. That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Um, thank you again to everyone who's messaged. Uh, if you have any additional messages, please message. Um, I guarantee a response to everyone who writes in. I think with that, Dave, it's time to say goodnight. Uh, any final words, my good man? I'll see you on the table sometime soon, hopefully. That's right. And guys, it is wild and crazy in the world out there. We at the Ghost Army Podcast hope that you stay safe and stay well. Good night and enjoy.
That's the ghost army. 